Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So um, I want to jump right into our topic for the evening. Uh, and I think people should be close enough to the Miguel. We're not going to do a lot of super close textual reading, but I thought it would be useful for you to have access to a couple of verses that we'll uh, touch on from the Megillah. Um, I want to start actually by going out on a bit of a limb and uh, by making the rather bold claim that I think I know, I have a strong feeling about what is the most important verse in all of Megillah Tester. Or at least it's the most important verse to me. Um, and so if you uh, turn to Perak Dalet, to chapter 4, we'll kind of refresh our memories about um, where it comes in the context. So this is, um, chapter 4 is, is uh, sort of an important turning point in the Megillah. Um, Mordechai is aware, has become aware of Haman's plot uh, to commit genocide against the Jewish people. And uh, so he's sending a message to Esther, who is already married to Ahasuerus and living in the, in the king's palace. Um, and so Mordechai sends a message to Esther, who's still in hiding as a Jew, of course, right? Sends a message to Esther, um, telling her to go. This is her moment. Um, she needs to go into the king and do what she can to save the people from Haman. And um, Esther's first reaction, of course, is uh, understandably one of terror. Um, in fact, the Gemara actually goes into great and graphic detail about just how much fear she was experiencing and sort of her, you know, one thing describes her, her guts falling out, you know, she's, she's really terrified to do this. And she says, actually, in the Megillah, I haven't been summoned. And everyone knows that if someone enters the king's palace who hasn't been summoned, they'll be killed. And then Mordechai relays this message to Esther. OK, this is great. The translation here is an outrage. All right, so we're going <laughs> to, which is always fun. Um, it's because it's really gonna it's gonna drive home um, part of what is precisely so important to me about the line. So, in telling Esther that she needs to do this and she needs to go into the king, Mordechai says this line to Esther, or, or sends this message to Esther, and says, uh, "We're in sorry, we're in verse uh, Yudalad fourteen, 
uh, the second part of it. And I'll tell you in a minute what's scandalous, I believe, about the translation. But Mordechai says to Esther, Mi yodea, mi yodea im la'et kazot higat lamalchut. Who knows if it wasn't just for this moment that you became queen, that you arrived in, at your royal position, okay? Now, uh, can someone read uh, that? This is the second part of verse 14. Can someone read loud and clear for us the outrageous translation that appears here? Okay. <laughs> now, I'm going to make Simmons out of this, okay, because um, it, it's just so fascinating. So just sit with it for a minute, and, and I'll say a little bit more about it, and I want to hear your thoughts. But the, the verse in Hebrew is, Mi yodea im la'et kazot higat lamalchut. Who knows if it wasn't for just this moment that you became queen? So that, to me, that miodea, that who knows, is a very, very important part of really, um, I mean, what's going on in the Megillah overall, but really the whole theology of Purim, the whole experience of Purim, there's so much in that miodea, in that who knows, and that's part of what I want to reflect on together tonight. Um, so when you think about it, and, and so it's not, it's not surprising in a way that the translator here is trying to get away from the sort of um, open-endedness and ambiguity and uncertainty of that who knows, right? Because when, when you think about it, in a moment of crisis like this, when we're being called to action, we usually look for a message that has a little bit more oomph, like this one, right? This is it. This is exactly why you became queen. This is the moment. You are going to make all the difference, right? But it's not at actually what Mordechai says. What Mordechai says is, you know, consider the possibility. Who, who knows if, if this is not exactly the moment that you came to this position for? Um, so I, I think the, the translation is actually reflecting a deep human impulse that we have, which is to uh, long for promises of certainty in moments of uncertainty, um, and to long for promises of certainty from our leaders, right? That's, um, that's a very natural human impulse. But the miodea of the Megillah here, the who knows, is, I think, offering us a different kind of model of leadership, which is not one with a lot of bluster and bravado. It's really one with a much kind of quieter um, humility and sense of hope and possibility. So this is really crucial to me um, personally, both, both spiritually and morally, actually. Um, because, of course, the world of Purim, uh, which is not unlike our world, is a world in which there are no guarantees, a world in which we're always living in that place of miodea at some level. We're always living in that place of who knows. 
and um, and in a world, by the way, um, not only with a lot of uncertainty, but generally without a lot of really clear signs from God, right? Um, and uh, it's worth noting, again, just to remind all of us that the book of Esther as a whole is the one book of the Bible, the one book of the Tanakh that does not make any explicit mention of God's name. Um, and certainly, if you just think about the, the story of Purim as a story of, um, of rescue, if not redemption, we can talk more about that later. I don't think it's a story of redemption, but it's certainly a story of rescue. It's one that has really, you know, not the clear signs and wonders uh, that we associate, for example, with the Pesach story, right? It's much more, if God, if God is there, God is really hidden sort of between the lines of the text. Um, and so uh, there's a way in which the world of Purim, the oilam of, the, of, of Purim, feels very connected to the world in which we find ourselves. And I think there are ways in which the miodea of this verse, the who knows of this verse, um, holds a lot of rich wisdom and learning for us. And, and I want to highlight um, three particular aspects of that miodea that are, are really important to me this evening. And I'll, I'll sort of move through them. You should feel free to you know, wave if there's something I'm saying that you, that you think is outrageous or that you just have a question about. Um, but I'll kind of move through them, and then I'd really love to open things up for, for some give and take. But let's, um, let's move through these three aspects of, of this, this miodea, this kind of Purim theology or Purim Torah of not knowing, right? Of not living with certainty. So the first aspect has to do, the first reason that that's so important to me um, is because of what I see as the profound dangers of theological certainty. And again, I'm going to welcome you know, pushback. And, but um, I think, um, well, I won't assume what, what we all know. I will just say I think there's a lot to be said about the dangers of, of theological certainty, the danger of thinking that we know God's will or that we know what God has in mind for us. Um, and to talk about this piece, I want to actually tell a story, it, it, take us back to the first time I ever had my attention called to the, this, this verse in the Megillah, um, called to the, to the Miodea. And it was in the summer of 1993. It was actually my first summer with Bronfman uh, in Jerusalem. And um, I was sitting in a shiur that was uh, being taught by Rabbi Jim Ponette, who was an important, who was a colleague of mine on the program, but an important teacher and mentor of mine. And um, about 30 of us were crowded into a room at Beit Ticho. Do people know Beit Ticho? Anybody been in the, the home of Anna Ticho in Jerusalem? Uh, so it's a beautiful, it was her home. Anna Ticho was an artist and really wonderful sort of luminary and collector, person who, who hosted gatherings of intellectuals in Jerusalem, um, uh, particularly in the 20s and 30s. So, so there we were in her home, and um, this place that had been in the 20s and 30s a gathering place for 
intellectuals, um, scholars, thinkers like Martin Buber and Gershom Shalom, and their, their photos were actually hanging on the walls above us as we were having this shiur. And, um, and uh, Rabbi Ponet was, in this particular session, drawing a distinction between that circle of intellectuals who hung out at Anatijo's house um, in those years and a group of people who hung out just a few doors down on the same street, right, at uh, the home of, at the yeshiva of Harav Kuk. Um, and um, so for those, you know, just to, to remind us all and get it really quick, Rav Cook's worldview uh, flowed from a very, very deep faith in the promise of God's redemption. And he had a very strong view of human history in general and of Jewish history in the 20th century as unfolding sort of a, an in, inexorable process uh, leading towards that promise of messianic redemption. Very strong messianist. Um, and the intellectual circle that gathered in the home of Anatijo um, very much did not inhabit that kind of world view of sort of religious certainty, messianic certainty, uh, and redemptive promise. And they inhabited a world uh, that was much closer, I, I think, and, and Rabbi Panette was teaching in this session, that was much closer to, this, to the world of Purim and um, to the world of, of the Miodea, of the who knows. Um, and, and I felt in the moment, as I was hearing this, you know, a world much closer to my own, to the way that I experience uh, to, I to the way I experience the world. Um, so that, um, that teaching, just that first invitation to think about, like, what does it mean to live in that place of, um, sometimes I, I, sorry, it's a little, you know, cute, but um, sometimes I like to think about it as the messy versus the messianic. Um, right, that, you know, this we're living in an unredeemed world and it's a messy place and there's a lot that's not certain and that's very much uh, the world of Purim. So that, that introduction to the idea of Miodea um, has stayed with me all these years and really began to give me a religious language for my own commitment to um, to that messiness, to, to humility in the face of so much uncertainty and mystery, um, and really helped me embrace sort of not knowing as not a, not a failure of faith, but as a spiritual path. Um, so fast forward a couple of years and uh, to Purim of 1995, don't know how many people associate right away, how many people's minds go where mine goes, thinking about that. Um, but Purim of 1995, we were back, we were living in New Haven, and um, that was the year after Purim had been uh, forever transformed and, and tainted uh, for me, and I think for many of us, uh, by Baruch Goldstein on Purim of 1994. Uh, Goldstein um, was, of course, the, the, the man who went into the cave of the Machpelah 
um, Purim, the cave of the patriarchs, and uh, opened fire on scores of Muslims, killing 29 and injuring, uh, seriously wounding uh, 125. And he saw himself as acting out uh, the imperative to, uh, to wipe out Amalek. Right? He saw himself, he was sort of, in a way, kind of walking out of the pages of the Megillah and, um, and onto the stage of human history um, with, a kind of, with a kind of religious fervor and religious certainty that um, I um, find breathtaking and obviously in that case was, um, you know, life-taking, more importantly. Um, and so we thought a lot that year about what it meant in the Purim of 95, a year later, about what it meant to read the Megillah a year after then and what, meant, what it meant to celebrate Purim. And I'm actually remembering, I'm looking at my husband over here. We were at our minion in New Haven that year after, and I remember one <clears throat> professor of English literature at Yale who showed up with a... <laughs> Leslie Brisman, <laughs> who showed up with a little protest sign at the Megillah reading, you know, because he really felt like it was sort of morally unacceptable to continue to read the Megillah in the same way without acknowledging what had happened at that previous Purim. Um, so, but one of the things that I remember really struggling with that year was. Um, at the same time as I needed to and wanted to distance myself from the kind of sort of religious fervor that I saw as motivating actions like those of Baruch Goldstein, um, felt also important to really reckon seriously with the question of, all right, if I'm committed to uncertainty and humility in the face of mystery, what, what demands are still made of me? Right, because um, um, one of the dangers, of course, of um, of uncertainty is the way in which it can lead to a kind of paralysis, um, and that leads me to actually um, the the second aspect of this verse that um, that has become such an important part of my own. Um, religious orientation, I guess, um, which it precisely has to do with this issue of the risk of uncertainty sort of immobilizing us, right? Um, and when you think about it, you know, again, just playing with this phrase, mi odea, who knows? And you think about the times in our lives when we say, mi odea, who knows, right? So often, yes? Well, Later, we'll say it 12 times or whatever. That's how Beautiful. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. We should come back to that and think about how that's great. Of course, then it's Echad You know, we're, <laughs> um, that's a great connection. I have to think about that. So, um, but certainly just when you think about it in life, right? So often when we say, who knows? It's with, you know, kind of that shrug of the shoulders, or a little bit of an eye roll, an upward glance. Um, and, um, and sometimes it comes kind of with this quality of 
of passivity or resignation, right? Kind of, who knows? It's too complicated. Who knows? I don't want to get involved. Well, like what the teenagers used to say, whatever. Whatever, so. right, yeah. Who knows? Whatever. Exactly, exactly. No that. Right, right. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, so what's really interesting about the who knows in this verse, who knows if it wasn't just for this moment that you became queen, is it's exactly the opposite. It's not the who knows of resignation. It's not the who knows, nothing I'm going to do is going to make a difference anyway, so whatever, right? But it's actually who knows, not as a guarantee, but as a deep invitation to action, right? Um, and, um, you know, you, you can almost hear Mordechai saying to Esther there, um, just consider the possibility that you are in this place and in this time for a purpose, right? Not, I believe you were specifically brought to this palace just for this emergency, but consider the possibility that you are here for a reason. I'll get to you in just one second, but consider the possibility um, that there's something um, that is beckoning you, summoning you to overcome your fear in this situation. Consider the possibility um, that even though the outcome is certain, uh, that you need to summon the courage, um, you need to summon the, the, the capacity um, to go into the king's palace and do what you can, act out of that place of connection and responsibility and love for your people in order to save them in this crisis. Yeah? I take it as a pure kind of connection to God. Um, to me, who knows? So to me, the subliminal message is don't worry about it. It's like, who knows? God knows. Mm. And so to me, there's like a comforting, I guess. To mm -hmm. me, it's you were here for a reason, mm -hmm. and and you have a purpose, and God knows what that purpose is, and you just have to have the fa same faith. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's a they go together. It's yeah, not a, like a negative. It's a very positive. I don't know. Maybe it's childlike, but I I find it very spiritual when He said, "Who knows?" Yeah, yeah. Because you have Thank a reason. You. Right, right. So I think, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think you hear it a little bit differently than I do, which is great and fine. I, I think that both, um, both actually have a spiritual quality to them. And I, I think that what I, the, the kind of promise, the assurance that you are finding comforting, um, I think, I think, I mean, I'm thinking about this in my life in general. There's something that is more comforting to me. If I'm in a frightening situation um, or a challenging situation and somebody says, don't worry, well, that's just, <laughs> you know, a brick wall for me. Um, 
I mean, like Rabbi Nachman says, um, to the true believer, believing is seeing. Mm. So to me, that's how I interpret the word, a faith. Yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, and and this gets to this gets to sort of how we understand faith, right? For for me, I think the the act of faith is that the openness to the possibility, as opposed to the absolute certainty. And I'm I'm not, but you like that also, the openness to the possibility. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Great, great. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, t- I tend to kind of go through it a different way. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, Jews like to ask questions a lot. Yes, and we I think do. That's maybe why Mordecai said this, but in my mind, I think he's telling her that he believes that's the reason. He wasn't really questioning it. He he was maybe putting it as a question, but he's saying, "Look, you're here. Why do you think you're here? You know, right. you're here to save the Jews." Right. And right. Uh, so. I, it wasn't an uncertainty. I think he was just making a statement, but doing it in form of a question. Right, right. That is certainly a classically strong way of reading it. Um, absolutely. And I just, partly because of how I think theologically and partly because of how I work literarily, I think it's significant that it is in the form of a question and sort of laced with this sense of uncertainty and possibility as opposed to something more definitive. I'm going to bring in one more piece of evidence in a second, but yeah. I don't think you can look at it without looking at a statement that says it doesn't matter. You know, if it goes bad, you're going to die either way. <laughs> so you're saying, you know, yeah. well, maybe that's why you're supposed to go, but that's not where you're going there because you're going there because that's your only shot. Right, right, because he's, yeah, and I'm not focusing on the, you know, right, that, you know, that you're going to, if you don't do this, you're going to die along with the rest of the Jewish people. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, and I don't mean to ignore that. I'm, I'm just trying to focus sort of existentially on the moment, what it is that, because Esther changes so dramatically here. It's such a turning point. She goes from such a, a murky and somewhat passive character to this incredibly focused sense of action here and courage and taking a risk. And I, I think there's something that this opens up in her, you know, that's not about offering her a guarantee. And she says, right, you know. If I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. She's willing, really, to lay her, her life on the line in that moment. Um, just, to, just as another kind of it, turning the prism a little bit, another angle on this, um, you know, what I'm thinking about as sort of Purim theology here, um, if you just go a couple of verses later to the beginning of chapter 5, um, where Esther actually enters... Uh, the throne room. Just this is the very beginning, the very first verse, um, and it says, bayom tilbash Esther Malchut." Right. Um, so translated, this is a reasonable translation. <laughs> Three days later, uh, Esther entered the throne room dressed in her royal robes. 
Um, but what's interesting about that verse, in the Hebrew, it, it doesn't say anything about robes, right? It just says, Vatil bash Esther malchut. Um, Esther sort of clothed herself in malchut, clothed herself, clothed herself. And, and so it's the shot meaning, the simple meaning of the text seems to be that she clothed herself in royal garments. But this verse is actually brought in the Gemara as the proof text for the fact that Esther was a prophetess. So I think there's something very interesting about this, um, which is related for me you know, to this larger sort of theological stance. Um, normally, when we think about prophecy, we think about it top down, right? We think about prophecy as the prophet receives a call, a clear divine call, and responds. Um, to bring this verse as the proof text that Esther herself is a prophet is a very interesting move because all, all the verse says is, she, the, the way the Gemara is reading is she clothed herself in the Shekhinah. Really, she clothed herself in the divine presence. So it's a very bottom-up view of prophecy, right? If you contrast this with a prophet who hears the divine call and you know, either runs in the other direction like Jonah or responds, um, uh, this is a very different image. It's you know, this woman terrified for her life who is wrapping herself in the Shekhinah, wrapping herself in the divine presence in order to um, undertake this incredible act of courage and compassion. Um, so I, I want to suggest that this is Esther's really modeling a very different understanding of prophecy, a very different kind of prophecy, this kind of ground up form of prophecy. And I might even go out on a limb. I'm not sure about this, but is something, it feels like a sort of feminist form of prophecy here. Um, and it's, it's a prophecy that, again, is not about, it's not about certainty in this moment. It's not about her hearing a clear divine call saying, go into the king's throne room now, Esther, right? That's, it's not that kind of prophecy. It's, it's a prophecy that is, is somehow summoning something that is going to carry her forward and in, in where she needs to go. Yeah? Why Shekhinah? There are all these various aspects of God. Why, why Shekhinah? Because Malchut... Malchut is associated with the Shekhinah. Malchut is sort of in the cluster of linguistic associations and imagery associations with the Shekhinah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's just how it you know, comes down to us, but yeah. So I want to, in connection with this, this is all part of my reflection on this question of what does it mean to live with uncertainty but not be paralyzed by uncertainty, right? What does it mean to live with uncertainty 
but not as something that holds us back and keeps us from taking action or lets us off the hook from taking action, but as something within which we find a way to propel ourselves forward and actually as something that makes demands of us, um, that something in which we have obligations. So, so Esther is modeling that in moving forward. Um, in this moment, clothed in, in this sense of the divine presence. Um, there's, another, there's another response to that question of sort of uh, how do we live with the uncertainty of the world of Purim um, and the, the hiddenness of God in the world of Purim without being paralyzed and with taking responsibility. And this, um, I learned originally through, um, through David Hartman. It's really his Torah, so I teach it in his name, David Hartman, Zichrona Levracha. Um, and he talks about the fact that, um, that on Purim, actually, the response, the activist response to the hiddenness of God on Purim is friendship, is taking care of each other, is radical human responsibility. And the way he gets there is he says, think about what are the central mitzvot of Purim? What are the central obligations of Purim aside from hearing the Megillah? Mishloch manot, right? Giving treats of food to our friends. Matanot levionim, giving gifts to the poor and having a sudat Purim. Uh, having a feast, a, a Purim feast with people in our community, with people we love, right? So he says, when you think about it, um, though, and those are, that's it in terms of sort of the, the central mitzvot of this holiday. They are all mitzvot of human connection, of human friendship and connection. So this is another way of thinking about this question of, okay, how do we live in a place of sort of theological uncertainty, unclarity, hiddenness of God, rather than you know the God of of uh, say the Exodus story or something, how do we live in that place and take responsibility? We do it precisely by saying um, that our obligations in that kind of a world of uncertainty are uh, to take care of each other, to feed each other to be responsible for each other, to befriend each other. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So that's point number two on, um, on on uh, sort of living in this world and, and not being paralyzed by it. Um, so I want to touch on one other aspect of the, of the Miodea, of the who knows, that's um, become really vitally important to me. And it relates not to the first danger that I mentioned of uh, the danger of thinking that we know what God wants or has in mind for us, uh, and not to the danger of paralysis in the face of uncertainty, but to one more danger that I want to touch on and that I think is, is central to Purim in a whole different way, and that is the danger 
of thinking we know everything there is to know about another human being. <laughs> Which is, I think, a danger that we're all familiar with, whether closer to home or farther from home. Um, so this is also, I think, part of the theology of Neodea, is a radical embrace of the mystery, the infinite mystery, not only of the divine, but of the human being who is a reflection of the divine image. Um, and I want to say a little, I want to connect this a little bit to our practice of, um, of dressing in costumes. I want to connect it to that for a moment, right? The, what is all this about, this whole thing of disguises and costumes on Purim, right? And especially in the context, by the way, of uh, the, the, the Megillah, the story, which is really, um, it's such a story of character. All the characters are caricatures of human virtue and vice, right? They're very one-dimensional in some ways. Um, you know, Haman, the sinister power behind the throne who's out to get the Jews, Ahasuerus, the fool, the foolish king who sits on the throne but exercises no real leadership or authority, etc. Mordechai, the righteous man of faith who refuses to bow down. Um, anyway, so we're, we're kind of captivated by the purity of these characters in some way, especially as children. Um, and uh, as adults, hopefully, we learn to sort of laugh at the absurdity of those, of those kinds of absolutes. Um, but I think the tradition of dressing up in costumes on Purim actually allows us to play with both the allure and the absurdity of the absolutes that we impose on a world uh, that is, in fact, insistently ambiguous. Right? So we try on the different characters in the Megillah or different characters in our world, um, partly as a way of trying on different parts of ourselves. Um, so, um, yeah, well, well, I will say one thing, <laughs> um, just specifically about, I always think is interesting about the language, the Hebrew word for clothing, right, which is beged, and is connected to um, also the Hebrew word for, um, for betrayal. Um, boged is someone who, who, who betrays. And so there's, there's an understanding somehow that clothes sort of, uh, clothing both um, reveals something important about who we are and also um, we betray each other through our, our clothing, right? We can hide, we can disguise ourselves, we can... So we're playing, I think, in these costumes with sort of the ambiguity of, um, of self. And, and I think that by inviting us to do that, Purim is um, giving us a very important reminder of the simple but really complicated truth that we are each more than one thing. And it sounds simple, but I think it's harder to get than we realize, right? So um, Esther herself embodies this in the Megillah, right? From the moment she's introduced, 
Her identity is hard to pin down, and she actually has di two different names, Esther and Hadassah. Um, it's unclear whether she's Mordechai's cousin or daughter. Um, it's ambiguous whether she's Persian or Jewish. There are all these ambiguities in her identity. Um, and in fact, uh, there's a beautiful little um, teaching in the Gemara from Rabbi Elazar who says that to each and every person, Esther appeared as one of his own people, one of his own nation. There was some quality that she had that allowed, that, that had to do with this ambiguity of identity that allowed her to appear to different people as one of their own. It's a really intriguing um, midrash. And, and he says, those who saw Esther would say out loud, she's one of ours. Really interesting. Um, so, um, but again, this, she, her character and this whole practice of dressing up in costumes, I think, is a reminder of this, this basic, basic truth that we are all more than one thing. And again, uh, you know, uh, a, a warning against this danger of thinking that we, we know everything there is to know about a person. Um, so, and of course, you know, this has all kinds of reverberations for us in our own time, right? But when, when I say we are all more than one thing, um, I'm, I'm thinking, um, you know, we are all more than simply um, our profession. We are all more than simply our appearance. We are all more than simply our skin color. We are all more than simply our class. All of the ways that we flatten each other by thinking, um, by seeing only one aspect of who we are, those are all kind of, um, well, they're all really, they're all violations of the human being as a reflection of the divine, right? Because if the human being is created B'Tselem Elohim, if the human being is created in the image of God, and we know that God is infinite, um, then to be Nivra B'Tselem, to be created in the image of God, is to have that kind of quality of infiniteness within us, right? That sort of I contain multitudes of Walt Whitman, you know? And, and in fact, um, I think part of the theological claim here that's, that's underlying this message uh, of Purim is that when we, when we flatten another person into only one thing, um, it's not, we're not only doing violence to their humanity, we are actually engaging in an act of idolatry, right? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this will maybe be the final limb I go out on for now, but so, uh, and again, this is connected to the notion that the, the human being is created in the image of, of the divine. Um, so we know that one of the definitions classically of idolatry is when we mistake a part of God for the whole. When we take one aspect of God and mistake that for all of what the divine is. So 
what I'm arguing here and that I think is one of the things that Purim comes to teach us with this we are all more than one thing is that when we do that with a person who's created B'Tselem, when we take one aspect of who a person is, when we take a, a disability and mistake it for all of who they are, or an illness and mistake it for all of who they are, we're engaging in that same kind of act of idolatry, right? Um, so I actually want to, um, I want to close or come very close to closing with a passage. No, I'll, I'll end with this and then we can, um, we can open it up for a conversation. Um, I want to close with a passage connected to um, this concept of idolatry and um, how it connects to seeing human beings as created in the image of God. And this is a teaching from, um, from my teacher, Art Green, who's the founder of the Hebrew College Rabbinical School and I think was out here not long ago uh, teaching in this community. Um, but he, asks, he, he shares a teaching. It's actually a teaching from his teacher, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, who asks the question, why is the Torah really so concerned with idolatry? What's, what's the big deal anyway? Why is the Torah so concerned with idolatry? And Heschel says, um, you might think that it is because God has no image, and any image of God is therefore a distortion. But no, Heschel said, it is precisely because, because God has an image that idols are forbidden. You, as in you, each and every one of you, each and every one of us, are the image of God. But the only medium in which you can shape that image is that of your entire life. To take anything less than a full, living, breathing human being and try to create God's image out of it that diminishes the divine and is considered idolatry. You can't make the image of God. You can only be the image of God. That's uh, Heschel via Art Green. Um, and so I just bring this back around to um, the hiddenness of God in the Megillah and want to suggest that while well, God's name is absent from Megillah Dester, um, God's image is very much present during our Purim celebrations in the multiplicity of the faces all around us that are both hidden and longing to be seen. Well, my husband has a question. Should I let him go first? <laughs> okay, Shani. So you were talking about um, the the ability to um, figure out the, the, the uncertainty is not about. Um, I guess I'm wondering. Mm -hmm. The story of Esther is a story of gathering the courage to do something she knows she needs to do. Right, um, it's a, and through friendship, through connection, through being a prophet, a little bit like you know, um, 
what you would produce, the way of drawing courage. Mm. But how, what about in the, um, the aspect of uncertainty, which is about, I don't know what I should be doing, mm-hmm. right? And that seems like the, the tough part of living in this world without revelation. Right. You don't know A or B. Esther doesn't really have an A or B. It's like A or nothing, and clearly A is the right path forward. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, I have two thoughts about it. Um, I don't know. It's a really hard question. I mean, my first thought about it is I'm not so sure that in the moment she knew what she needed. You know, that, I think that may be our projection onto it because we read the story in a certain way and we, and we know how the story turns out. But how on earth could she really possibly have known in the moment? I don't... Or, or at least... Um, I think there's a strong possibility that what we experience as sort of the muddiness and murkiness of a situation when we're in it is precisely what she was feeling in that moment. And the summoning of the courage and the connection and stuff was her very brave response to that. Um, You know, I will... Somehow the question is calling to mind something that I... One of the things I think a lot about is that so often in life, I guess this is my mother's voice, you know, my my mother, my mother always in any difficult decision-making situation and, you know, figuring out what to do, she would always say, it's that damn balancing act, you know, so, so often it's not just not knowing, like there's some answer that we, but we're balancing these competing things, competing values, whatever. And um, so one of the ways that I like to think, and, and that's because life is all about paradoxes and, you know. Um, so one of the ways that I like to think about that is um, the great, you know, one of the great paradoxes of the tradition that's embodied in the Pirkeavot, Imena Nili Nili, you know, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? And if I'm only for myself, what am I, right? And those two, you know, it's a great example of that tension comes up all the time in our lives. And how on earth do we know? When is it time to lean into, you know, protecting yourself, protecting your own, whatever? And when is it time to lean into protecting the other end? And we never know, and we can be paralyzed in that struggle. And then the third part of that teaching comes along and says, if not now, when? Which I hear as not an answer to the tension, uh, not a resolution of the wrestling, but as you know, a command that says, yeah, you've got to wrestle all of that, and then you've got to put one foot in front of the other, and you got to do something, you know, so. Um, okay, so Aaron, and then I don't know your name, but okay, we'll, we'll kind of loop this way, okay? Yeah. Were there any reasons that you've been thinking a lot about John Brown recently? Mm-hmm. Uh, John Brown. Um, and especially in connection with Chapter 9, and what happens there's a humility to your version of <laughs> Esther's theology that is not reflected in chapter 9 mm-hmm. and is not all 
always clearly inappropriate. There was rarely clearly appropriate. Um, it's just sort of my short version of wrestling with John Brown. Uh, and so I'm wondering how you think about chapter nine and the context of a theology of what I say mm. is humility and mm -hmm. then what that tells us about how to think about action. Oy vey. <laughs> <laughs> man, oh man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, chapter nine. So funny, I just got an email actually from the person organizing the McGillah reading at the rabbinical school who said, I'm really having trouble finding somebody to read chapter nine. <laughs> Can you read chapter nine? You have, an, you have a response to that. Well, I have David Hartman's response. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, no, but I think it's very powerful, actually, to, to see it as the shadow side of the same thing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I was um, just, I just learned a, a text I had never studied before um, by a Hasidic master from the community of Alexander, Yismach Yisrael. I don't know much about him, but he has this teaching also on, um, it's actually for Rosh Chodesh Adar, for the beginning of the month of Adar. And it's also about friendship, which is really interesting. And I don't know if Hartman had it in mind when he talked, but, but he says, how do we enter the gates of joy in Adar? Um, it's through Ahavat Reim, through the love of friends, and Achdut Ha'am and the, the unity of the people, um, right? So there's, and there is, the, both of those are, are going on here. They're two different things, but related. Um, and one of the things I, I love, without going on and on about it, one of the things I love about the way he frames it, actually, is that it feels like what he, the side of Ta'am, the side of the unity of the people that he emphasizes is, is that love and, and friendship. Um, but there's that other side that gets emphasized, particularly when we feel endangered um, and you know, we carry so much fear with us, understandably. Um, and uh, yeah, so I just, I really echo, I think, you know, um, Hartman's response via David is a really powerful one. Um, you know, the, the, the one other thing I would say about it is that I think it is important. I, I, I want to think more about how to respond, but I do, one thing that feels important to me is to recognize that dark side within ourselves also, um, you know, and not just see that as something sort of that other people are guilty of, but 
the ways in which um, we can each we can we can all we can each and all fall into that um, in under certain circumstances. Um, so I'll think about it a little bit more. But that yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why the third part of what you said is so important? Because they presumably fell into that trap of seeing these hundred thousand people as just the enemy, not as kind of full complex. That's people. beautiful, people right? Right. Aspects of it, who they are, they're also parents and children and right, right. And just got so that. That's beautiful, right? That got flattened, right? Right. Um, yeah. And there's, I mean, there's beautiful, there's that wonderful midrash about where does Amalek come from to begin with, right? That it was, you know, because his, um, his mother, I guess, it was, was rejected. He wanted to become part of the people and was rejected and sent away. And that it, it comes out of a wound, out of an injury, you know, which is an attempt to humanize even, even Amalek. But yeah, that's a beautiful connection. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's, we all, I mean, we, I think we do it in a thousand ways, you know, that we're not conscious of all the time. I mean, think about that. I think about, you know, in, um, I remember being, working, volunteering in a um, sort of senior, uh, whatever, residential home where they went where they did a project of doing oral histories with each of the residents and then just posting on the door sort of a little bit of a biography you know and it was such a it's just speaking to the same kind of thing like remember that this person had a whole life and you're you know you're walking into their room and just seeing like one tiny 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 piece of who this whole person is and and was yeah thank you uh, oh, wait, Shmuley was up, and then we'll come to you, and then we'll come over here. You're deferring. Great. The contrast between no remorse and self-defense and self-action equals privilege and the exodus. And why is there this tendency to say, kill them, but they didn't take their property? Does that mean they were good guys? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Look, in a lot of you know, the community I grew up in, the approach um, to this. Right, exactly. It was the, you know, what I affectionately call the white out approach to troubling texts, which is just don't read that part, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a wonderful 
uh, you know, but this, so to, to just push against that a little bit in, my, in myself, the tendency to the whiteout approach, there's a wonderful poem by the poet Yehuda Amichai, which starts, uh, you might remember this one actually, I don't know if we studied it your summer, but anyway, it starts, Sinanti mitoch megilat ester et simcha hagasa. I filtered out of the book of Exodus the vulgar joy. And he goes on to talk about all of the things that he tries to filter out of the Bible um, and, uh, and says at the end of the... It, it's a wonderful poem anyway. He says, You know, now I live with this cut-and-pasted Bible. I live censored and limited and in peace. Um, and part of the way that I hear that poem, even though you know, we have this tendency to want to get rid of the difficult stuff. The ugly, I mean, it's not just difficult, right? It's what he's saying. It's ugly. It's vulgar joy. Um, uh, but it's there also because it's part of the world and it's part of us, right? The problem is not really, I, I would argue that in a lot of these cases, the problem isn't just it's not like it's just a problem with the text. The text is reflecting back ugliness that is in the world and that we need to reckon with in ourselves and in others. We do. That's right. We do. We do. But does that, I mean, there's danger in that, right? Yeah. Yeah, Shmuley. So, so I, was, I was teaching a class in West uh, Arizona um, a few weeks ago on Olam Haba, on Afterlife. And a woman came over to me afterwards who was so upset with me. And she said, um, I can't believe this. You shared all these different views on Afterlife. And I actually still don't know what it is. She was so mad. Yeah. I, I, said, I said, I don't know what you think I can provide. I don't know what it is. But here's all the Jewish meetings. So, but I think there's actually a deep hunger for certainty. Yeah. And um, I hate to say let's build our theology around what works, but it seems that certainty works for a lot of people. And I'm not saying we should promote it, but I wonder how we engage with those who have an epistemology geared towards certainty. Mm -hmm. um, that this is in my conception what God is, this is how God intervenes or doesn't intervene with the world, here's what a next life looks like. And what it looks like for us to build a community based around uncertainty, but also that provides space for those who are looking for something to be a spiritual theological certainty, um, because it allows for urgency. It allows for a connection that, even if there's a skepticism connected to it, there's still a space of certainty that exists for them. And how do we, you know, is there also any responsibility or not that helps with that? So I'm a little bit of an extremist on this, um, I think. Um, so the first thing I wanted, the first thing that came up for me when you started the question and you said, you know, certainty works for some people, um, works for a lot of people. There's, I certainly agree there's a hunger for it. Um, the first thing that came up for me is, you know, it works until it doesn't, until something happens in your life and it doesn't. Um, and, you know, I just was having um, this week a, a Mio Dea conversation with someone who was 
describing just that, I mean, in, in a beautiful way, you know, describing her um, lifelong identity as a healer. And she had just gone through the experience this winter of doing a stem cell transplant for her brother. And everything had gone very well. And she, you know, and, um, and then before his immune system had re been rebuilt, he got a cold and, and he died. And she was talking to me because it had thrown her whole, both theology and self-image into a place of complete chaos. And she said, you know, I've just like flatlined, like the everything, you know, I, I can't, that's it. And um, so, you know, certainty, <laughs> certainty works until it doesn't. I don't mean that in a harsh way, but I think there's, there can be a real cruelty um, to the, the claim the, to the claims of certainty or the clinging to certainty when when we're faced with with things that really throw those questions open. Yeah. I wonder if you're assuming certainty is connected to a fundamentalist belief, where someone might operate with certainty with a very much a modern or a postmodern belief for certainty. So it would feel as dangerous or as, as unhelpful there. Yeah, look, I'm not rejecting all, <laughs> you know, all certainty of any kind. I mean, here I am sounding, I'm very certain that this is the most important pasuk in the book of Acts, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but by the way, this per, I mean, this was not a fundamentalist in, by any stretch of the imagination, like a very deeply held sense of just who she was in the world and what kind of healing was, was possible. And, um, and I think it takes all kinds of, I mean, I, I will tell you this, because this pushes a button for me, you know, the most extreme kinds of certainty that I have encountered, of sort of spiritual certainty that I've encountered, often um, come out of, come in the form of sort of new age certainties. Um, I'll, I'll give another, you know, an example I'm still traumatized by from years ago when I was, um, counseling a couple whose daughter had a, a, a brain tumor and um, the wife who was very involved in New Age communities said, you know, my friends are telling me um, that it's not surprising given the very complicated divorce that we've just been through um, that our daughter developed a brain tumor. Rabbi, is that... now?" Uh, you know, I just find um, those kinds of theological moves, whether they are in fundamentalist garb or whether they're in New Age garb, I just think there's there's tremendous um, cruelty in that. And and so I think, you know, I resist it. I resist it. Um, there are other kinds of certainty that I don't resist. So, you know, that's, I mean, we, yeah, I'm, I acknowledge that that's a, a thing for me, yeah. Hold on, you've been waiting very patiently and then we'll come back around this. One thing I'm kind of curious about looking at this in context, mm -hmm. these are the Jews that are first and second generation since the destruction of the temple. Mm -hmm. They're fairly still new in the land and, and I wonder if this was part of their 
separate identity, and, mm. and this is, and I won't even go to the thing that actually was 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 exiled, so the wives will obey their husbands. I'm not going to that part. Oh, well, we can go there. <laughs> well, I think yeah. we're going to go home together. I don't know. But, <laughs> right. but um, I find that interesting. Nothing to talk about that, that, that. How assimilated were the Jews then, and how were the? Is that give context to the story? Right, right. Now that's a whole other. I mean, that's a whole other angle that I haven't touched on. Kind of the historical. I mean, it's a mythic. Right. Right, but. Um, but it's the point they make in the. In the yes. Yes. And there's certainly, a, I mean, that's part of, a lot of ambiguity around identity, including this whole ambiguity around Persian, Jewish, and, um, right. But, but it makes the and point of Mordecai having been exiled when the... Yes. When they were... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, there were... Last question. Oh, my goodness. Well, no, she has to go. Yeah. Okay, last two. Yeah. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Look, there's a lot of, I mean, there are commentaries that struggle very mightily with this whole issue of do we rejoice at the, is it permitted to rejoice at the downfall of your enemies, right? Um, it's, it's out of, yeah, out of. Thank you. No, thank you for bringing that in. And, th and that's part of, again, acknowledging life. the compl life, right, <laughs> right, right. That, that that impulse within us is within us. Of course, of course it is. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, I think Michael gets the last. Okay, then we'll stop there. Thank you, thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures like the one you just listened to, please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.